Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. It's not to me to determine, I don't rate and rank people for how successful they should be in life, quite the opposite. I want to enable them to explore their own potential so they decide. I don't get to answer. I'll advise, I'll coach, I'll say, well, have you thought about this or thought about that? The question is, what, what works for you? So I want to help you get on your journey, whatever that may be. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 95. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Bruce Werner. Bruce is the Managing Director of Kona Advisors, LLC, which provides governance and owner advisory services to middle market businesses. His range of assignments has included governance, strategy, finance, M&A, workout, succession planning, and all facets of family business consulting. Mr. Warner is an experienced outside director, having served on numerous boards during periods of growth, restructuring, and crisis management. He writes and speaks <clears throat> excuse me, on governance issues impacting the middle market. Bruce, glad to have you on the show today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm definitely excited about this conversation. Not only are we both authors, but we both have a connection in Henry DeVries, who was kind enough to allow or help both of us, I believe, bring our books to market. So always nice to have that connection as well. And we have the connection of the fact that I spent 12 years living in Chicago and you are in north, the northern suburbs of Chicago. And I mm-hmm. think we both actually were born in New York City. Um, so multiple connection points here, Bruce. And um, I'm certainly looking forward to getting to know you better. And specifically, I'd like to, to talk about your advisory services. You know, what is it? Who, who do you serve and how do you do it? Thank you very much. So my target market are privately owned businesses, typically between 10 and 100 million revenue. I certainly work with businesses much larger and smaller, but that's where most of the activity is. And what I found out over the years is most company owners know how to run their business. They know how to make money, deal with the everyday. But when there is something new that they haven't experienced before, they get stuck. And that's where I come in. I act as a shepherd or a guide to lead them from where they are to where they wanna go. Quite simply, I say, where are you today? That's point A, let's define that. Where do you wanna get to? That's point B. A lot of people actually can't answer that. So let's let's define what that is so that you have the success in life that you want. Once we know A and B, I can build you a road from one to the other. Okay, so actually that's really interesting to me. And uh, you you and I were talking before the, the podcast that this is a leadership podcast. So it's not about wealth advisory and all that stuff per se, but we all have our own pathway, Bruce, to get to the topic of my, of my interest, which is leadership. So in other words, if I'm talking to a school leader, which is my background, if I'm talking to a business owner, uh, if I'm talking to anyone and the focus is on leadership. So it's about things like goal setting, being more productive, being more targeted in what you're trying to do. And not only having that clarity for yourself as the leader, but being able to then communicate it and hold others accountable, right? Coaching Absolutely. at its essence 
is awareness and accountability, the two A's. So let's talk about yours for a second, because what you're talking about almost sounds exactly like what I would be doing as well, maybe with a different type of client, but the same type of process. So in other words, where are you? Where do you want to go? What are your steps? And then of course, the accountability piece, because sometimes we come to the realization, but we still don't take purposeful action. So I'm curious to know, Bruce, um, strategically, without, again, very, being very industry specific, what does that process look like for you? How do you help people create the vision? Because sometimes if I know, like, for example, Henry Ford, so he said that if I would have asked the people what they wanted, they would have said, I want a faster, you know, a faster horse, right? A faster, a faster wagon, right? People didn't even have a concept of what a car is or what it could be. So their paradigm was stuck in the animal driven, you know, uh, transportation. And so just a faster version of that. So sometimes people are saying like, well, I just want to be wealthier than where I am right now. And maybe where they are right now is they're moving from money from one pocket to the other. They're just maybe squirreling away a little bit of extra, but they're not necessarily living a life of, of true financial freedom, of true affluence. So how, number one, it's a matter of helping them create a vision, I guess, and then walking them through that. Now I've talked a lot in getting to this point, so I'll be quiet, but I'd love to hear more about your process. So one of the phrases I use often is, I like to keep things simple. So let's start with the answer and work backwards from there. Uh, and what that means is really, where do you want to end up? Most people struggle with that. So the work starts with, a series of back and forth questions, challenging their assumptions, challenging them to understand their capabilities and exploring first, what is actually possible? Um, are, are you dreaming appropriately? Uh, are you uh, a phrase we commonly use? I do a lot of work in family business is there is a difference between working in the business and on the business. Most business owners spend 95% of the time working in the business. Do I have enough inventory? How do I price it? I need to hire somebody. And very little time of on the business. The business is an asset of the family. And even if you're a private owner, non-family business, it's a major asset. It's not a child. What do you want this asset to do for you? Uh, and most folks, it's like, hey, I want to make a certain amount of money so I can retire and have a house in Florida, which is fine. Um, but my question is, no, no, no. It's not about making money. It's about how much time you have on this planet. That's the most, you know, time is the most precious thing we have. You cannot make more of it. You can make more money. So given that whatever time you have, how do you want to use it? And that kind of, you know, for most folks, they go, oh, let's step back and talk. Let's think a little deeper. Good. Now I have your attention. What really makes you happy? What do you really care about? Is it your kids, your community? You want to do nonprofit work? What, would, what is it so that at the end of your life, you can say, I have no regrets. I did the things to achieve my life goals as a human, and the business was a vehicle to allow me to do that. Um, that is a much harder challenge than saying, I want to make X or Y dollars. I want to have a Ferrari or the usual stuff because... There's a lot of data that business owners spend their whole life working. They work 70, 80 hours a week. They say, oh, I'll retire, I'll buy possessions, and I'll be happy. And in fact, it almost never works out that way. Too many people work, they sell their business, they get a pile of money, and they're miserable for the rest of their life because they, they no longer have purpose. 
they, they, their goal was to get to a place that was undefined. And when they get there, they're lost. And to me, that's just a shame. So how do yeah. we make it so that your time on earth is good and, and no religious context or overtone, it's just biological fact. How do we make it so that you know you feel good about it and you get something done and you're proud of what you you've accomplished? That's a you know, much really, harder aspiration really interesting. than making money. Yeah, I, I'll tell you why I like your answer. First of all, there were like at least three themes that we probably should be unpacking. Um, you had talked about um, you you at the beginning you were you were sort of in the in the the goal setting component of it and setting what we might call not reasonable but really sort of challenging their expectations. Um, on what's possible. And, and to me, that's a very gray area because maybe you could say that everybody could be an Elon Musk or everybody could be a whatever. And so how do you determine, I, I wanna, I'm, I'm sort of layering this and then we can unpack it. I'm curious to know where you draw the line between what people will sort of conservatively devolve down to as opposed to what are those higher aspirations and how do you find the sweet spot? You talked about setting goals that are more about purpose and more about the life you want to live as opposed to, let's say, a certain financial uh, amount or some other, let's call it metric per se. And then you talked about the idea of bringing, bringing a person happiness. And the two, of course, are, are, are related, um, you know, almost like begin with the end in mind, right? Sort of like the, the Stephen the Covey concept, right? You know, and we have this, um, I know I have it in the Jewish faith, and I, I believe other faith faiths have something similar where where you believe that there's there's a goal in all of it, and sort of you trying to re, you're trying to reverse engineer your outcomes uh, in order to get there. And there's this other book that I've started listening to. I forget the author because I just started it, but it's called basically um, the, the, the 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 I forget what it is. But he talks about the get and the gain. No, the gain and the gap. The get, the give and the get. Not the give and the get. It's like the 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 gain and the gap, and the, the basic idea there. We'll have to. I know I'm sort of rambling, so we'll have to come back and and, and talk, take take each of these separately. But the idea in that last point, because it's very sort of top of mind for me, is that we spend so much time thinking about the gap, so much time thinking about what we don't have, so much time thinking about what we haven't accomplished that we don't appreciate the gain. And I felt this way, for example, when my book came out. You know, I'd worked towards it so hard, and I finally got it, and it's like, now what? I worked so hard for my doctorate and I finally got it. Now what? And it's the idea of appreciating the journey, not, um, not just the destination. It's about appreciating the fact that nine years ago, I was a school leader in transition and I had no idea what I was going to be. And I started hanging shingles and I decided I was going to move into the space called coaching, but I still didn't have clarity about what that even was. And someone said, go get a doctorate. And somebody said, do this. And I was kind of like finding and following advice a little blindly, not really knowing what I was fully getting into. And even though I'm not necessarily arrived, I don't know if, ever, if, if we ever have, but I feel like if I don't stop and say, wow, look at all I've accomplished in that period of time, I could get really down on myself because I'm constantly focusing on what I don't have rather than what I do. So I know I threw a lot at you, but it really was your ideas. And I was kind of like trying to unpack them so that we could go deeper with them. Feel free to take any of them and sure. kind of run so, with it and tell me where your, you know, where your thoughts are. So let's lay out a few things. So there's only one Elon Musk, love him or hate him. Um, your first question was, well, how, how does an individual, a client assess like what their maximum opportunity is? It's not to me to determine 
I don't rate and rank people for how successful they should be in life, quite the opposite. I want to enable them to explore their own potential so they decide. I don't get to answer. I'll advise, I'll coach, I'll say, well, have you thought about this or thought about that? The question is, what, what works for you? So I want to help you get on your journey, whatever that may be. Um, uh, it's I'm not in the business of judging in that sense. So, so hold on for a second, because I, I, I have to ask this question. It's sort of a burning question. I'm going to let you continue. But, so, but you know that some of your clients are, gonna, are, are selling themselves short, right? You know, in those Correct. conversations, some people are, are, are aiming too low. That's my comment. Go ahead and respond. Uh, for sure. We're humans. We're flawed. Uh, the question, the challenge for me is when, I, when you're in that moment, of uh, sensitivity and delicacy and uh, uh, frailty, the, the challenge to me is, well, so what do you do to help them and do no harm? Uh, like children, I wanna push them to be better, but there's no benefit to setting an unrealistic expectation or giving them the idea they can do something which is clearly well beyond their capability. That does not help them. Uh, can I move them a little bit Beyond their, beyond their reach, what we used to call stretch goals? Can I give them some enthusiasm and self-confidence to try a little harder? That's success. Um, it, for all of us, it's not just our capabilities. We are uh, uh, both a victim of our circumstance and uh, able to take care of whatever happen, opportunity happens to come to us. That's just life. Um, and that's why I always come back to Darwin uh, everyone thinks Darwin said survival of the fittest. He actually never said it. What he really said is survival of the most adaptable. And for my clients and hopefully for your audience, I encourage you to think about adaptability as being the key thing that helps you to improve your circumstance in life and at a minimum uh, deal with the unfortunate aspects of life. Because if you cannot adapt, you will suffer terribly. Um, and so I always say survival of the most adaptable. What do you have to do to adapt to whatever your circumstance is, whether, whether good or bad? If you're fortunate, how do you make the most of it? If you're unfortunate and there's a tragedy or whatnot, how do you do it so you live another day? COVID's a great example. COVID picked winners and losers mercilessly. Um, if you owned a small restaurant, bar, or tavern, it was, it was the worst. If you sold furniture for working from home, it was great. I have a client who uh, sells furniture. And, and when the governor shut down the state, he said, am I an essential business? And I said, Steve, you, you sell tables and chairs. How can you be essential? He called me back a half hour later and said, I'm essential because everyone's working from home. Record setting year, the best he ever did. We just sold his business. It was, it was a wonderful thing for, for them. I was wrong. So let's talk about adaptability and how you help people sort of navigate through that because, you know, COVID is obviously a huge one and affected a, a massive swath of individuals on a variety of levels, really the whole world. Um, sometimes adaptability is much more personal and individualized and doesn't Absolutely. necessarily involve big government. It doesn't necessarily involve, you know, bailouts and, 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 and PPP and all this kind of stuff. So, so individuals are, you know, I dealt with a career transition. I, again, moved from school leadership we, we've all to had coaching, you know, and, and there's a similarity between the two. It's not like I went from school leadership to becoming an artist. 
you know, coaching does draw from many of the skills I had already developed, the leadership emphasis, all of that. How do you help people be adaptable, both in terms of life in general and specifically as it relates to their financial strategies? So, you know, I'll, I'll share a personal story. Uh, after I finished graduate school, I went to work for a startup company. A year or two later, we went public and uh, I was 25 years old, thought I was pretty hot stuff. And a uh, few buddies and I started a computer company and we went and raised money and you know, thought we were going to be the next Steve Jobs. Well, in October of 87, the financial markets crashed the worst since 1929 and people literally didn't know what tomorrow was. Uh, it made 2008 look like a walk in the park, frankly. Um, and we went broke and uh, I had never been prepared for it. I had uh, $1,988.50 in the bank and tens of thousands of dollars of debt and had no clue what to do. Um, and so uh, I had to, it was my first lesson in learning to adapt. Uh, I couldn't talk my way out of it, couldn't write a check. There was no one to ask for money. And um, uh, the hardest part of adapting is making the decision of, I need to make changes I would previously not consider. Things that weren't in my brain are now all that matters. It's the, uh, a combination of mental flexibility and mental discipline to consider that which was not considerable that's the hard part. Once you get into decision, data gathering, decision making mode, you can do something about it. Um, but it's that first step, uh, which is where most people stop because it is truly so hard. Um, and so when there is a life challenge, you know, it's worse when it's personal. Uh, a sick loved one, you get bad news from a doctor, that, you know, you lost your job is. I have, to, I have to accept that which I cannot change and I need to figure out a path forward. And it's really upon me to say, I'm gonna literally put one foot forward um, and then another foot. And you know the phrase, um, it's really, well, it's no more complicated than that. It is that difficult. I don't wanna be disrespectful, but you either decide you're gonna take a step forward or not. So let's come back to something you talked about before which is the ever elusive happiness. In fact, in the same book I referenced earlier, the author, the author talks about the um, Declaration of Independence and uh, the, the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As if happiness- Not to guarantee. Is, as if a pursuit, but as if a pursuit is something that we're constantly in, meaning to say that happiness is down the road. <clears throat> and you already talked, Bruce, about how that's not a, a, a real- um, it's not a realistic expectation. It's not like we work X number of years and then I'll be happy, right? Happiness has to be something that I think has to be defined or we have to have a direction, but simultaneously, I believe very strongly that happiness has to fill us all the time because there is no, there is no device, there is no gadget, there is no place that magically sprinkles you know, happiness fairy dust upon us, regardless of what Disney wants to say and, uh, and all of that, happiness comes from within. So on the one hand, you know, that's, that's a truism. I don't need a financial advisor to tell me that. On the other hand, you're trying to create a lifestyle for people in the present and in the future that is infused, I understood from you with purpose, is infused with 
values that really uses certain kind of moral compass to drive you in the direction that ultimately makes you look back and say, hey, my life was, was, was worth living. You know, I, I, I did what I wanted to do. I gave to who I wanted to give to. How do you work people through that complex uh, process to identify their true north? And then, of course, the steps they need to take to get there. Uh, thank you. So uh, in my book, I have uh, a bunch of sections on the definition of happiness. I did some primary research. I boil it down very simply. Happiness is defined as when you accept your situation in life, whatever it may be, uh, until you come to terms with this is my circumstance and I'm okay with it. You have varying degrees of unhappiness. Uh, another car, another house, another whatever doesn't change anything. It's just stuff. Um, and the challenge, I think, for humans is realizing it's within our control when we allow ourselves to be it. Um, so a yin and yang uh, goal setting is an active process. You specialize in that. So let's talk about what your goals are. Let's talk about where you are. Uh, and if you don't hit your goals, can you be happy? And if not, why not? Um, and are these goals, you know, if, if the goals are just to uh, embellish your success in life, it's different than if your goals are critical needs that are um, you know, truly pressing, I'll say. Um, it is, you know, it's an active, ongoing topic of conversation. But, um, you know, Carl Jung said, I'll take no patient before they're 40. Presumably said no patient before you're 40 because they're still children. And when I was 30, I said, oh, that's, that's just bunk. You know, I can, I can think my way out of that. I don't need, no, I don't need to listen to my elders. And my early 40s, I just said, boy, was I wrong. Um, some things are just a function of time and maturity. We see it in literature and movies and all that stuff about the, you know, the grizzled old man or woman. And um, you know, certainly uh, I am uh, guilty of the foolish things of youth. And as I age, I've come to realize you know, there's uh, something just take time. You cannot, um, uh, you cannot rush things because it takes 10 or 20 years to figure them out. And that's part of the human yeah. condition. <clears throat> I mean, that's part of our tradition. And certainly the idea that uh, there's what to look up to. I mean, I'll be very, uh, I'm very comfortable sort of referencing uh, different parts of that. You know, the, the, the Torah, the Bible makes very clear to stand up and revere uh, elders. Respect your elders. And, uh, there's a respect for elders. There's a need to understand that life has value. Second even or third elder, commandment. Even if, even if that elder is not a sage, just the idea of living life uh, draws out certain experiences and we develop, you know, I, I'm in the same boat as you, but in my thirties, I was, I was a young emerging leader. I was a hot shot in my own head. I believe the press, I got myself into certain boatloads of trouble as a result of maybe being a little bit too, um, uh, um, change oriented, right? Trying to achieve certain things, trying to be quick to the, to the outcome and satisfy certain constituents and not necessarily being able to be patient and play it out. And, and you mentioned another point, Bruce, which I think is critical. And it's part again about rabbinic tradition, the idea of Ezehu Ashir, who is really wealthy, somebody who is satisfied and happy with his lot. Now that doesn't mean that you can't aspire for more financially doesn't mean that you can't aspire for more in other areas. At the same time, 
it's never the stuff, like you said, that's going to make us happy. It's our relationship with the stuff. And yes, we may want to have nice things because that's what lights us up. That's what makes us feel like we have achieved something. But I like to think of it a little bit differently. You know, money is a is a hot button topic. A lot of people talk about it as a negative thing. And and even within, you know, my own religious, you know, framework, the idea that money could be evil in some ways seems to be something that I picked up over the years. On the other hand, I think money could be extremely valuable, extremely, not just, of course, in its intrinsic value, but think of all the things you could do with it, right? It, it amplifies, it pours, it pours fuel on who you are, right? So if you're a jerk, right? If you're somebody who's you just self-inclined, a, a bigger jerk, right? And you're more selfish. You have to put yourself out there more and throw the money around like you're some big wig. On the other hand, if you are intrinsically a great person and your, your ethics, your morals are in place, you could take that money and, you know, do a thousand, a million great things with it, improve the quality of life for people on so many different levels. So it's just a vehicle. And, and that to me is your character. Yeah. And that brings you back to that happiness point, because if you are ultimately creating a situation where you're after something, because what it's going to do for your family, how it's going to set them up for success, how it's going to set up your community with another school, another uh, place of worship, another library or place of fine arts or whatever you might do to, to make life for others better. I mean, who wouldn't want that and who wouldn't feel like filled really through that process? Yeah. I mean, you can spend to be contemporary, you can spend a million dollars to help the victims of the war in Ukraine, separate from politics, people are suffering. Well, you can spend a million dollars, get your name in a newspaper to say you're a, a great guy. It's the same million dollars, right? Um, it's just a tool. The question is, how do you use it? I have a different question for you. It was something that intrigued me when I saw your bio. And I, I will tell you, as a, as a former nonprofit leader, this issue of governance was a big deal, you know, because a Absolutely. nonprofit... Nonprofits oftentimes are run by people who are well-intentioned, but don't necessarily have understanding of what the nonprofit is all about. Education is a great example, right? A lot of independent schools, the people are not, for the most part, educators. They're business people, community people who are just looking to help. But sometimes that lack of knowledge affects their governance in interesting Absolutely. ways. And of course, you're dealing with it primarily, if I understood correctly, on the business side, I'm curious what you see as the biggest challenges in business governance and, um, and what role do you play to help people so, govern their businesses sure. the right you. way? So for clarification, I've done a tremendous amount of nonprofit board work. I've been chairman of the board of uh, uh, several nonprofits. So um, my experience is both profit and nonprofit. On the nonprofit side, the key thing to understand is that you may be a nonprofit business, but you're still a business whether it's a, uh, a school, a religious community, a theatrical company, it's still a business. And so the principles of good governance apply, even though your goal is not to produce a profit. Um, and that's, once that gets across, you get on the right path. But understanding that, uh, you know, if it's a charitable cause where we want to do good, that doesn't mean you can run a sloppy shop. Um, yeah. And, and so I, that's a key message there. So once that's accepted, 
uh, within the world of government governance, um, I provide a spectrum of services to my clients. Uh, I am frequently hired to design and form boards of directors and boards of advisors for privately owned and family businesses. And there's a whole, whole process about how is that done. Uh, I serve as lead director or chair running those boards um, when it's in the client's interest. Um, and I also advise and consult to boards as an, um, as an independent consultant. And I serve as an independent director on a number of boards. So the whole so let's let's take that experience. Is, yeah. Is so let's take that swath of experience that you have, and maybe you could distill for us, Bruce. What would you say are the? I'll, I'll let you take it either way. Um, the 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 things that really great boards do to help their organizations um, or their companies do better or some of the things that boards must avoid because when they, when they do this kind of thing, it just sinks the ship. Yeah, so in the for-profit world, boards are responsible for oversight, strategy, capital structure, risk management, succession planning. Um, a couple of the ground rules for a well-functioning board are you need to be able to fight like hell and then look forward to having lunch with each other afterwards. Uh, there's also what I call the airplane test for when you're recruiting for a board and getting, because boards are about fit. The number one thing is there fit in chemistry between the participants so they're effective as a group, not as individuals. So the airplane test is if you wouldn't want to sit next to someone flying from New York to LA, you definitely don't want them on the board. Um, and so fit and chemistry is important. And when you design a board, you don't say, hey, I'm going to get three golf buddies because we really like drinking together. No, no. Boards are designed. So if you have five seats on a board, each one is assigned to a purpose. So given what this, the situation of this company is like, we really need help with marketing. We need help with technology. We want to go on an M&A binge, but we don't know how to do it. You find talent that fits those slots so you have the skills and experience that matter, and then they have to be cohesive, at, cohesive as a team. If you get that right, smart people will make good things happen. Um, the right board members are people who want to make a difference. And certainly in the private company world, if they're doing it for the money, they're the wrong people, don't hire them. Um, it's about having an impact. That's the right motivator for good independent directors at a private company. Yeah. So if you're talking about mix and fit and you know how it all comes together and the people are really the most important, I'm very intrigued because I've never been part of or certainly operated a family business. And I, I kind of wonder what it's like. You know, I have somebody within my family that does work for me, you know, and you kind of wonder what it's like for people who are, you know, related in some way, who, who share a business, maybe they inherited it from, from the founder, whatever that looks like. And so <clears throat> I would imagine, you know, you can't, you can't be overly selective, at least as it relates to the family members. How do, you, how do you help family businesses understand this piece of it? And what advice do you provide them when there are complications that obviously aren't the kinds of things where when you close the door, you know, you're out of the office, you go back home and you're not related, you're not connected. These are people who might see each other at social events. And of course, 
have this sense of a family? How do you how do you help people navigate that? So the, the key things with family business are uh, being forthright and communicating. Um, business is business. The challenges of business are only complicated by the emotional connection. And the simplest way of putting it in, in a non-family business, people have a choice. They can leave. You'll never see them again. That is never true with family. No matter right. what happens, you're still family, <clears throat> even if you don't talk to them for 40 years. The key thing within the family context is you really need to have some rules and rules should have consequences. So, um, you know, well-run families have family governance, which is separate and different from the business governance. They'll have a family constitution that says, here's the rules which say qualifications to come into the business. Here's our decision on how do we pay family members and what's our expectation of your contribution. Here's behaviors which we will not tolerate because typically we have a higher standard for family members because everyone's looking at us. And on and on, these are well, well-traveled paths. We'll have a family assembly, which is all the family members working and non-working to educate them on what is this business that we own? What are the issues? What does it mean to you and your children? which is separate from a family council where the family as non-management owners say, here's what we expect the business. We want a certain dividend. We want to sell. We don't want to sell. We want to grow. We don't want to sell certain types of products where they communicate to the people who run the business. Here's what you're supposed to do with it. Same as in a public company. So if you're putting structures in place to deal with conflict, it's a lot easier to manage with. Unfortunately, a lot of families, especially in smaller businesses, the way they deal with conflict is pretending like it doesn't exist and not talking about it. So there's you know, a herd of elephants in the room, but everyone's smiling and saying, oh yeah, everything's fine. Bad news does not age well. When there's an issue, you gotta deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those, yeah. those are kind of the things which, um, you know, we were cave dwellers 10,000 years ago. The first family businesses when dad and the son went out to hunt, hunt and gather while, you know, mom and the daughters were taking care of the cave. And I don't mean to be sexist, but I believe that's kind of how it ran back in those days. Um, and family businesses evolved from there. Went from hunter gathering to farmers and, you know, family farms are been the basis of uh, human society until the Industrial Revolution. All right. Well, thank you for that. I know you've got a book. And uh, we've been looking sort of at your book the entire time as it's been behind you, but maybe you could just quickly tell us um, in about a minute the, the title, uh, what your book is about, why you wrote it. Sure. So the name of the book is Your Ownership Journey. It addresses the issues that private company owners face over the life cycle of ownership from when you get into business to when you retire. Uh, Thank you for your questions. I've been able to touch on a bunch of the issues along that journey. Goal setting, business strategy, capital and talent, conflict management, succession planning, and then what I call life after the deal when you retire. Um, Mm. uh, We hit uh, number five on Amazon this week. So very happy. Congratulations. Mazel tov. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Available at brucewunger.com, Amazon, Apple, Barnes and Noble. Kindle, softback, hardback, audiobook, all the, all the usual book stuff. Thank you nice. uh, for allowing nice. me to 
discuss it. Sure. And then finally, this segment always has to end. It sounds like on a down note, but it really is uplifting. The biggest mistake you ever made, Bruce, uh, could be personal, could be professional, and uh, and how you got out of it, what you've learned from it. Uh, well, there's a long list of, uh, of candidates there. Um, we only have time for one. Uh, I'll, 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 not listen to my elders more and realizing that, um, that just being a smart young whippersnapper, uh, isn't good enough. Um, I, I've be- become more humble with age. Okay. Fair enough. Sounds like something we all should be doing. All right. We're now moving to rapid fire where the questions are short and the answers are shorter. Okay, here we go. The best time of day for a person to make sales and prospecting calls. Early. Eight o'clock? Between nine and 11. Got it. Okay. What are you not very good at? Selling. Okay. (laughs) A quote that you live by or think about often. Darwin, survival of the most adaptable. And finally, a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. Go to bed early. Okay, nice. I love it. All right. Now you've already shared your website. Is there any other place that people can uh, connect with you, find out more about your work? Sure. Thank you very much. So the book website is brucewerner.com. My business website is konaadvisors.com. You can read my material. I'm a author on Forbes at Forbes.com, Bruce Werner. Um, And uh, look forward to connecting with your audience in the future. Awesome. Well, I'm going to ask you, Bruce, uh, as I do with all of my guests for a final life lesson to wrap up our segment and to uh, put a bow on all the uh, wonderful things you've shared with us. Do the right thing. Okay. That is about as short and sweet as any answer I have gotten. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here. I know it's an exciting time for you as your book is, is out there and uh, making an impact. And I thank you for making some time for me to have this conversation. I look forward to getting to know you better and uh, to consume your content. And I certainly hope that Lead to Succeed Nation uh, reaches out to you as well to have uh, the benefit of, of, your, of your experience and everything you've learned from your elders, uh, as well as from others. Thanks for having me on. Best of luck to your audience. Take care. Be well now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 